Hi, this is Pete and Tim, and it's record time. Now, when was the last time you listened to a full record from beginning to end? Instead of the algorithmic jumble of modern music delivery, just gave yourself over to the careful work of a single artist. Well, that's what we're all about on Record Time. And we've put together a 10-album listening experience each season, crossing eras and genres, all for the love of the album. In this, our second season, we're focusing exclusively on live albums. So put on your golden underwear, ease back into your large mattress, and give your time and full mind over to Live at Monterey by the one and only Jimi Hendrix. Of course, for those of you who enjoy a liquid accompaniment to your intense listening, we are pairing Live at Monterey with Whiskey Sours. Pete, isn't that right? That's right. Cheers. Cheers, my friend, and welcome to <laughs> well, season two. Welcome to season two. So Whiskey Sours, why? I mm. think you had the perfect well, explanation for this. I tried to do a little research on Jimi Hendrix and alcohol, and somewhat predictable what most of the results turned up. Yep. But I did find some information, uh, most notably from his brother, that whiskey was his favorite drink. Okay. Um, and I forget, he had said, I think it was Jameson, that he always had a bottle of Jameson backstage. Um, and that's what you brought. And that is what I brought uh, with a little Rose's uh, sweet and sour mix. So we're doing shortcut whiskey sours. Because, of course, while whiskey was his favorite drink, the absence of Jimmy makes me feel very sour. Ah, uh, Jimmy. Um, we were just chatting before we started rolling about what is, in my opinion, the number one question in music, potentially in art altogether. Uh, as you phrased it, what would Jimmy have done? Uh, what is it, 30, 40, almost 50 years since he's gone. Almost 50 years since he's gone. Imagine what 50 years of his music would have been like. He, his career was four years long. Yeah. And he is lauded, and rightly so, his spot at the top of the guitar world, the 60s music world, music world in general, the, the kind of influences that he's had. Um, you know, I grew up Catholic. That was the religion I was raised on. But let's be honest, like rock stars are my polytheistic yeah. pantheon. Yep. And Jimi Hendrix is one of the most of major deities, man. I, when I first heard Jimi Hendrix, had no idea what it felt like to get drunk or high or any of those things. Um, but listening to his music felt truly transformative and transportive. Um, I, f I, yeah. I, I felt like I was in a different set of circumstances when the headphones were providing me uh, the music that he managed to get down in those four years. I do remember a time when he was scary to me. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I was not Are you ready experienced? for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it was, he floated along through whatever happens in the background as you're a kid, and you're just increasingly exposed to different things. Yeah. 
And he was like this otherworldly alien, scary, like, what is this sound that he's making that doesn't make any sense, that yeah. it make, has no connection to anything I understand? Which is funny. I mean, I, I can somewhat identify with that. I, I don't think I was 100%, I don't think scared is the word I was would use, but it was very intimidating. It was a very big yeah. um, kind of box to open up. And he's this bigger than life character with his crazy, you know, he wears a like a feather boa during this show, right? right. During Monterey, <laughs> right? Um, and one uh, of the most iconic pictures in rock and roll history oh God. came from this show. Well, this album, right. like if we're gonna start our season, I feel like we we have started our seasons thus far with something that's sort of like unassailably yes. universal. Yes. And I feel like Jimi Hendrix is unassailably universal, and I feel like this album ends up being special particularly because it's a document of a time when everything changed. It's the the sonic boom. Yes. It's very appropriate to be talking about how you first met him and your feelings. Yeah. Kind of because this was his introduction to many many people. Yeah, to the, this to the world, show, really. Monterey. Yeah. yeah, they had they had done their thing in England and had released an album that had gotten around already right. obviously, but as he explains quite clearly. Yeah. <laughs> in the show. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> And and here's what's interesting about it though, because he, I, I totally agree with you that he's yeah. this intimidating character, but um, once you get to know him musically, once you oh my become god, very familiar, he is such a teddy bear. Like he is the kindest, cuddliest, lovable. Happiest. As I think I've yeah. mentioned on a previous show, his vocals, which I don't think, I I think his vocals manage to be great without being good. Right. Right, they're not like yeah. technically strong. He's no, not God a strong no. vocalist. N- yes, but they're fantastically paired. They're they're pure, unadulterated connection to his guitar. Um, and, and it's and his they are sound. Great. It's the sound of Jimi Hendrix. Exactly, and he has such a magnificently unique resonance within his head and his. T- I mean, he uses his voice so freely yeah. and beautifully, and there's nobody that sounds anywhere near him. And he can sing the hard stuff and yep. keep up with his own guitar sound. Yeah. And then he can sing the ballads, too, and they all come across. But he's so happy. I mean, yeah. I th- as I said, I think he, I mentioned on a previous episode, he taught me what it was like to sing with a smile on. You can right. hear yeah. the smile in many of his songs, the ones where it's appropriate. Um, and then he makes the most ungodly sound that inspired... Right. Generations, music ever since then. It was all like it. this, it was such, I don't know, it's the big bang of rock and roll. Yeah, um, I mean, it's literally like guitarists were like, oh, okay. That's it. That's <laughs> what we do now. And everybody, I feel like every electric guitarist that you hear is in comparison to Jimmy. He did it all, and he had <laughs> he had all of the ideas and all the techniques, and he knew how to wrap them all up into yeah. the perfect package. Yeah, and it came from, I mean, so I read a little bit more than I've ever read before, obviously, for the episode about his life growing up and you know, his time in the army and things like that. And um, one thing that I thought was interesting, uh, he, the first song he learned to play on a guitar, which was not his first strung instrument, string instrument, um, but the first song that he learned to play on a guitar was the Peter Gunn theme. Awesome. And I have to tell you, Peter, uh-huh. I know how to play the Peter Gunn theme. Yes. So I'm not really saying, I'm not trying to say anything here. I'm just trying to say that the first thing that he learned was Peter Gunn. And I also know that. Okay. But I'm just going to leave it there. And let us all imagine right. what can happen from here. Because maybe the second most interesting question... <laughs> yes, is what music. could... How can this move forward? 
with this uncanny coincidence right. Right. in place. Just a coincidence. Oh my gosh. Tune in <laughs> for Record Time Season 35 where we do Tim Douglas live at Monterey. Uh, do you know what his first string instrument was? Did you get there? I don't. A ukulele. Awesome. Or an ukulele. As oh, okay. I if you will. found out that's the correct pronunciation. And we can go on and on and on about Jimmy's technique, and I hope we do. Yes. Because he's the most remarkable guitar player, and I feel like maybe he, like, he invented a ton of things, he stole a ton of things, and again, he wrapped it up into the most incredible sound. He, he picked up the music and he moved it forward. Holy smokes. Yeah. In, in an evolutionary way. Yes. Yes, there had been distorted guitar before. Yes, there had been bended notes before. Yes, there had been kinds of that, that gritty, kind of l- louder than acoustic right. rhythm and blues. But he took all of that and he cranked it all up and showed everyone else what's possible. And he paid his dues first as well. Yeah. I mean, he played with all sorts of blues outfits. And, yeah. And, um, Session musician in London. For, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and there's lots of, if you dig into it, there's lots of... Uh, fun little tracks by other bands that you can hear him playing on or you can see him uh, in yes. a couple of instances. YouTubes. Yeah, on the tubes. Yeah. Um, which I strongly recommend because um, the you know there's only so much we ended up getting from Jimmy. It's true. And it's worth kind of exploring how it all developed. And then we have this document and like I, it occurs to me we haven't really even kicked off like season two as a season. Right. And our whole like kind of like concept of like let's move on after season one yeah and kind of hang everything on a theme and in this case what better than like live albums right because they are a staple of the album uh you know frame of reference yes uh they're popular in a certain amount of time frame but they're still making live albums all the time and people love to hear live shows for various reasons and so this is a celebration and analysis of live albums yeah and they come a live album i think you'll agree comes with a different set of expectations and a different set of requirements as a listener uh what it is you're looking for in some cases you are looking to be uh, transported to a place you weren't able to go to regretfully right yeah yeah Uh, sometimes you want to return I've found, you know, on the rare instances that I've been able to get soundboard recordings of concerts that I've been to yes. have always been really, really fun. Um, one in particular that comes to mind was a Dave Matthews Band show I was at where Boyd Tinsley was not, uh, his mic was not on. Oh, oops. And they, they, they started with Minarets, I think it was, and um, whatever song it was, it relied on him, and there was none of him. <laughs> and I remember uh, Dave Matthews, like, screaming off mic but clearly gesturing at the soundboard like pointing to <laughs> to Boyd like give me fiddle like put the sound in the mix oh wow because it was uh, the focus of the song at the time and it yeah. wasn't happening um, and finally at just a beautiful moment they finally figured it out and flipped the right switch and in it flooded a little what? higher than it should have been in the mix because initially they had just turned it up yeah, and, then, and they're like you know, fuck they pinned what's wrong? It and they didn't realize that, so then they had to drop it back down. It was a beautiful thing, and I managed to get a soundboard recording of that, and I love, love listening to that. Oh, cool, because really cool you were moment. there. Right. And then there's the live album. I feel like that that's a couple. And there's a live album that I feel like this one is in the category of, of almost being like a journalistic depiction of a particular moment in time. Like yes. it's, It is a live press play on or press record on tape, yep. record the whole thing down, and press stop when it's over. Yeah. And so this is one extreme that I think is really awesome to think about because it is just a dude and his two, you know, blokes on stage just hashing away and changing the world. Yeah. In and, one hour. Yeah. And being very just professional and and showman like about it. One of the things I was I was find found really interesting about this, especially because I love acid rock. I love 
just crazy thrashing away at rock and yeah. roll instruments. So this album is so such a just a expression of unbridled joy mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of the performances are really short. And it's before yes. the age of the kind of total acid freakout eight nine, nine minute jams. This Everything no jam is very band. economical, right? In and fact, they're rushing a lot. Of yeah, <laughs> yeah. In some Th- ways, this they are. Is not, so I think you make a really great point about the document. Yeah. Because that is, I think, in, in large part, what we've settled on as we've constructed this season. But not entirely. Not and entirely. I think that's pretty fun because yes. a live album, like you say, has its own set of rules and expectations, but it actually is in ways that you wouldn't expect oddly malleable. Oh, sure. A couple of the ones that we've picked for this season are like specifically like doctored. I was, you know, in some of the research of which ones we'll do this season, we're not going to get to it, but there's the, the early Jane's Addiction live album. Oh, gosh, yeah. That is uh, cobbled together from a show, but they, they <laughs> added applause from a no kidding. separate Los Lobos oh my God. concert in order I'm to sorry. beef up. I'm sorry, excuse me? Yeah. Jane's Addiction's first album? Their live album. It's a very early live album, just called Jane's Addiction. The one with Jane's rock Addiction. and roll and, and uh, yeah, yeah. Her life was saved by rock and roll. Have uh, has artificial applause added from a Los Lobos concert? Stolen from Los Lobos, <laughs> who I love. Me too. Yeah, I don't know if it's but stolen. I can't imagine that the the Jane's Addiction at the time would have. Uh, pr- advertise that fact. They didn't say that it was that fact. All they did was use the applause to make their album sound more live. Did they? Did Los Lobos? How did this happen? Did Los Lobos I, play the label same mates. show? My guess are li- their label, label mates. mates. Of course. And in the co- the process of producing the Jane's Addiction live album, they were looking for like, uh, you know, like we want to make the crowd sound a little thicker. So did Perry and uh, and and everybody sign off on that? I mean, I would only assume it's their album. That's the official release, and they just. It's one of those apocryphal details that it was from a Los Lobos concert, but like uh, you oh imagine just God. the sound engineer like trying to find decent applause recordings in a similar size venue that would like sound good when mixed in with the Jane's Addiction stuff. That is amazing. And that, that more of that happens in live albums than you realize, and I think that's part of the fun of doing this. No, I'm just now realizing that yeah. uh, song producers have a folder on their desktop that says, you know, a thousand seat venue applause. Yeah. 50 seat venue applause. <laughs> totally. 500 seat venue applause. And then, yeah, Dirty Secret, the, the band comes in and, and, and uh, retakes things yes. uh, sometimes. Yes. Uh, or adds stuff sometimes. Well, we, we ran into that in uh, Exile on Main Street. Yeah. I mean, that, that happens all the time. Right. It is a little disturbing to think of it happening in a live album. It's, and that's what, not what you expect, because then right. that gets to the, what I think is one of the other important categories of the live album, is creating not an illusion that you're there. Yeah. Well, it's sort of an illusion that you're there in that, like, a place that you couldn't be, but creating its own sound bubble in and of itself, mm-hmm. using the liveness as a essential part of, like, the kind of the ambiance. Okay. But then, you know, using that then as the springboard for other kind of tricks that make you s- it sound even more that kind of a lush hugeness. You're talking still from a production standpoint. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. And again, yeah, so that's that's another one that we'll get to. But yep. just to talk, to, to kind of put the framework on season two is yep. like all about live records. It can mean a lot of different things. So then back to Jimmy. Yes. This is a document of his introduction to the United States. Welcome, Jimi Hendrix, to the U.S. This is a <laughs> uh, fully formed, mercurial, otherworldly performer just landing yeah. on the, the world scene, well, the U.S. scene anyway, uh, with... Such force that I, I don't know of too many other. I, I don't know that there's much that's comparable to it, at least insofar as what I've read. I was not alive yet. However, yeah. 
uh, just based on the accounts and just knowing, you know, the bits that I've collected along the way in my 40 however many years, uh, I don't know that there's anything that comes quite close to exactly what they accomplished with this particular evening. And yeah, one evening. 34 minutes. And then just listen to every record that came out after. Oh my God. It it flipped overnight. Boosh. Yeah. Continues to be source material and inspiration for top artists 50 years later. Yeah. Unbelievable. So you mentioned you had some specific questions about this album. Is it more about the tracks? Should we start walking there? It's it's probably about the tracks. I mean, a lot of this... so, So it gets to my earlier point that this is not somewhat similar to Jimmy's vocals in general. While this is a uh, red-letter day in rock and roll history and an absolutely gorgeous album from beginning to end, it is in no way perfect. Oh, my God. It is messy. Yes. And it is, at times, bad. (laughs) Right? this This is my bigger question. Like, there are... I guess my questions are specific moments where I'm wondering... Is that wrong? Yeah, did they fall over? I don't care that it's wrong. I love this record. I'll defend it to anybody. Yeah. But technically, I feel like I can see a lot of mistakes. There are mistakes. Yeah. Totally. I mean, we're talking about Jimi Hendrix. So yeah. it's, you know, he's not a classical musician. Um, but I think it's, it's, it does us no good to just say that everything's awesome. Like, I feel like as right. critical listeners, we should be able to say, like, oh, something didn't sound right there. Or, like, this didn't do it for me because I felt like they completely went too off the res- off the farm, yeah. you know, and then could, had a hard time getting back. So part of me feels like the only track that kind of makes it from beginning to end without the three fellas falling off rhythm yeah. or... Um, and I and even within that, he admits a lyric flub. Oh, is, yeah. is the, oh we forgot a verse. Don't worry. About yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, is uh, what's the Dylan? <laughs> Titles escape me right now. Um, whatever it is, the, the the Dylan track. Oh yeah, like Rolling Stone. Like a Rolling Stone. Thank yep. you. Just. To... Um, I feel like that's the only one that actually stays rhythmically correct. Uh, all the segments happen in order, you know. I, I feel like that's the only time they stay in lockstep. But that's it, the and, one where he forgets a verse. Right, right. Even that one has <laughs> an actual stated mistake within. So, which he happily just like says and says, "Don't worry about it." Yeah. And I feel like because he's locked into one of the things that I feel like live musicians get, which is that a show is ephemeral. Right. And you don't have to sweat every little mistake. Right. You just keep selling it. Yep. To the, your very last note. Yeah. And all those does. little things will just be part of it. Right. And so all of the stuff, all of the flubs and all of the yes. near car crashes and tuning brakes right. and everything <laughs> end up being part of this huge, beautiful uh, mess. Yeah. That's not like anything else that anyone ever heard before. And, and Again, yeah. these are not things that are on my mind when I listen to, you know, for more than a half a second. But yeah. when I dig into this record and when I have an expert like you to just sit and talk about it with they become a little bit more of a curiosity. Totally. That's why. It's an epic freakout. Yeah. Yeah. And he's there to fuck everyone's brains. Yes. Um, Let's talk briefly about The Sacrifice. (laughs) What are your thoughts? Um, I think it was Jimi Hendrix trying to put on the best show possible. Right. And that was really a response to hearing about The Who smashing their instruments. Exactly. And he's like, well, I got to go out with a bang too. Yeah. 
So, okay. I, I think I'd read that it wasn't actually his idea. I think it was his manager's it was, idea. Yes, it was his manager's yes. idea. Saying, like, in response to The Who, you right. should do something. Yeah. And he was like, okay, yeah. I, I mean, I, I appreciate what The Who were doing at the time. Yeah. And I appreciate what Hendrix was doing at the time. In the end, I, pre- I appreciate Hendrix's version more because he did it one time. Right. And The Who made it a staple of every show. And yeah. I think that's just bullshit. Send all those instruments off to kids. Right. And, and to some extent, there's just this sort of diminishing returns... Very. Um, do it on Ed Sullivan. Right. All right. 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 Sure. Right. And do then it, do it where the moment deserves it. Where, yes. Yeah. Um, and maybe you could argue that Monterey Pop is one of those moments, but I feel like at that sure. point, everyone had seen it and like, oh, let's just make it a part of the show. Yeah. It ends up just becoming schmaltzy. Right. You know. Yeah. Schmactering. It ends up being, uh, you know, like Sweet Caroline. If you've already been to a dozen games at Fenway. Yeah. Right. The first couple times, Sweet Caroline's fantastic. But uh, and, nowadays, you know, when I go to a game. I have to find somebody who looks like they're there for the first time and watch them enjoy Sweet Caroline. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and then in the meantime, realize, oh, it's, um, it's, at one point, this felt exciting and dangerous. Right. <laughs> uh, maybe not dangerous, <laughs> but exciting. <laughs> well, touching me, touching you, dude. <laughs> Fair enough. Hearing a whole stadium sing that song, I, I've, it's never worked for me. I, I kind of like it. It's never worked for me. It's creepy. Uh, I know that there's no exit strategy. <laughs> touching me. <laughs> Okay, thanks, Neil. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, man, Jimmy and his his <laughs> his can of lighter fluid, and you can watch it on on you know on YouTube. Sure. Uh, and you and he, it's really brute force. He just like has this thing of lighter fluid, and he just like squirts it on there and sets it it's on fire. Funny because it makes it means that the guitar itself really wasn't burning. <laughs> yeah, really, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, right. It was just this but glaze that picture, of picture, man. That picture, it's the just best with his fingers. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's just perfectly framed. Yep. Uh, like the coolest yeah. picture in rock and roll history. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's up there. Yeah. So, track by track. Yeah. Are we ready to dive in? Yeah. Well, don't forget the intro. Oh, right. Perfect segue. Yes. From episode ten Tying of in. season one. Uh, uh, with Rolling Stones, we talked about the absence of Brian Jones at the yes. time. And here he is. Uh, and now we've uh, completed the band, as it were, because Brian Jones. And I don't know if. It's a, a, a an effect in the production of the album, but he he's barely audible yeah. until he actually says the name of the band. That's all they seem to have gotten clear. I, I just mean, assume he could tell what he yeah. says. But he was mumbling, yeah, which it's is really, weird because he's a musician. Really this he wonderful, I, they've been really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you, as if anybody in the audience was like, "Really, Brian?" You're like, "Come on, tell me." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, be I, honest <laughs> with me. Nobody says. Okay, this, they're your friends. We're impressed. I mean, what? How could you even script a rock and roll moment better than that? This, yeah. as you alluded to, that sort of danger, that sort of intimidating nature of the sort of milieu of Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, and he's introduced by not a Rolling Stone, but Brian, Brian Jones, Jones, the mysterious mm. lost member. The, the motivating factor behind the band who got phased out and cloud of mystery surrounding his death, uh, so many people would believe. But again, in the uncanny way that we seem to have in record time because we like to find patterns where they don't necessarily exist, there yeah. was an article this week on the Brian Jones uh, tragic death oh my God, and new allegations that, that it is, was a murder. Yeah. Oh, yes, I did see that. Yeah. But I feel like that's not a new allegation. I feel like I've heard that. It's been buzzing around. Yeah. It's always been part of the is lore, there but there's some new, re- uh, uh, someone else has come forward. Uh, 
Oh yes, yes. It was like a pool boy or something. Yes. Right. Interesting. So anyway, the yeah, the stars are aligning here. Uh, and the so co- this mysterious voice comes of this mysterious character comes literally out of inaudible mumbling into clarity only in time to say the Jimi Hendrix experience mm-hmm. in this sort of off the cuff casual way, as if it's going to be a jazz trio. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that and- one note rings out and you're like oh uh i'm wrong about that yeah and then he hacks your face starts off. yeah <laughs> and you realize that the world is changing like, in front oh, of your ears oh damn yeah. and um, he, he just comes in at a thousand miles an hour yeah yeah and it's he's able now. to sustain it as if it is effortless yeah uh which is pretty staggering yeah and the band is right there with him and he manages to find the right group to put together that sound and just right. to, to bring the right amount of chaos and also to bring the right amount of, I don't know, whatever glue to hold it together. Uh, a trio. That's all. That's this, it. This sound is being provided by drums, bass, and guitar. Yeah, three people. Three people. <laughs> wow. And like, you know, yeah, 70% Jimmy. Right. <laughs> Right, and and we've talked before about the importance of the relationship between the drums and the bass, and certainly they're there to sort of provide the click track or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, the pulse. The framework. Right. For Jimmy just to skate in and out of and slide up and down and ski all over. And, and, and that's pretty what, pretty much what they are. Right. I mean, they're awesome. Right. Yeah, Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell. Yeah. Um, and they're perfect for the Jimi Hendrix experience. And uh, they, they give him the right kind of like structure yep but give also have the right amount of freedom and they and and a really awesome amount of abandon themselves yes they they're they're not just sort of passively being a bed for jimmy they are meeting him yeah i mean they are they are keeping everything going yeah um but we do not hear bass solos no in the jimmy hendrix experience god no we do not hear drum solos in the jimmy hendrix experience they are his supporting band they are his supporting but i'm just saying like that what a how can you be a supporting band to that? How can you live up to that standard? Right. They were able to do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're both still around? Do you know anything about what they're doing now? That I meant to get into that in my research, and I, I just didn't get there. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, good question. I mean, gosh. So I'm sitting here thinking about trios, and I'm thinking about The Who. Although, were they four? They were four, but they in a way four. you can argue that they're a trio because there's really only the three instruments and a voice. Right. Um, so other trios at the time would be like Cream would be the other one I feel like would be the most uh, often related to the Jimi Hendrix experience. So the ones I'm thinking of, I guess I was wrong about the Who, um, but I was thinking of Jimi Hendrix experience, Nirvana, and the police as like just pretty much doing... More with three people than a lot of bands do with five, six, seven. Um, maybe maybe that's unfair for Nirvana, at least in the early days. Well, they have a similar sound in some ways to the Jimi Hendrix experience, right? Yeah. Nirvana couldn't have existed without him because he, Cobain is all just uh, dirt in the way that Hendrix is all dirt. Again, that's the thing. Like, yeah. there was distorted guitar before Hendrix, but he was—he's the one who jacked everything up. You can even see in the in the movie, the Live in Monterey movie, like he goes back to the amp and everything is at eleven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, "Fuck it, I'm taking this sound and I'm going for it." And he strung the guitar upside down. I mean, he's just such a visionary. 
And just the stuff that you don't even think about. Like, he uh, was left-handed. Yeah. He could play equally well yep. with both hands. He yep. played normal guitars, flipped yep. upside down. Yep, restrung. I mean, good God. And all the different styles and techniques. He was the first time I had heard of someone who, like, you know, when, when you... Anyone who plays the guitar knows that there are certain chords, right? That in the, the the open strum chords like G and E and C or whatever. Yep. yep. Um, and you rely on the E note being an E, and so if you walked up to a piano and play the E, it would be the same note, right? Mm -hmm. Jimmy would tune his guitars down a half step, full step, sometimes even like uh, three half steps, wow. a minor third, so that he would still be strumming an E chord shape. But it would be lower and wow. darker and murkier. Wow. And just like grittier and more just like uh, He was the first. Like, I did it in his honor uh, during our intro. He plays some chords with his thumb mm. wrapped around the string and on the lowest string. I think I've seen that. Which yeah. again, for any you know one who like is, is, has ever taken a guitar lesson, that's just not something that you do. Right. And he that's that's just a couple of examples of all the innovations well, that maybe he didn't necessarily invent but he did them all. He's like the 2001 of guitar players. You know like <laughs> what 2001 was to science fiction, like yes. any science fiction that you've seen right. since 2001 has borrows something from, yeah. borrows from right. is right. inspired by is yeah. in the same Mindset. I feel like that's the best way to describe Jimi that's Hendrix brilliant. and what he did to the guitar, especially, but music, Western popular music in general. I love that. Yeah, he's 2001. He learned... Uh, and just as scary and ominous. The, the ukulele, <laughs> or the ukulele that he started playing on was in the trash of like a neighbor's house or something that God. he and his dad were, uh, or maybe his mom were, were like helping them clean out, and he found this ukulele, and he... Uh, asked for it from the neighbor, and they're like, sure, here you go. And it had one string, and he just started to play songs on that ukulele one note at a time on the one string that he had. Oh, my God. And so, yeah, his whole jam is just self-created. So self anything that he's doing, you're not going to look to Jimi Hendrix for technique. Mm -mm. You're not going to look to him for technique for singing or playing or writing or anything. Because he is a self-made individual, so I—he's just an open channel to the cosmos, and to that's what you know, some musicians say is like, "I just try to get out of the way." Right. To your point, I think that does make him a good comparison for Cobain, because I feel like he's very similarly just himself. He yeah. didn't, you know, get trained, and then yeah. he didn't learn the rules to break the rules. He just created his own rules. I think they have a lot in common, up. really, yeah. and yeah. they have the perfect voices for their own style, for right. their own ideas. Right. I mean, Hendrix's voice is perfect for his ideas. Yes. Um, yeah, it's just perfect, and that's not something you can say. Like you can have a good voice but not match your music. You can right. have a terrible voice but write great melodies. It's really hard to have that whole thing. And I think that's one of the things that may makes Jimmy so special is that he really was this otherworldly creature. That's yeah. like where the fuck he's the you know Michael Phelps or whatever. Just right? Like, how are you such an anomaly biologically to Talk be this guy? It it, it yeah. really is. Not an exaggeration, and I feel like you know he puts it all out there on this record. And back to Killing Floor, I love it because it's it's one foot in one world and one foot in the other world. Like it's it's mm. Killing Floor is a blues. Yep. So it's kind of got the one foot in the rhythm and blues thing. And Noel Redding, like they you know they 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 came together because they were gonna do like rhythm blues because right, right. everyone was doing that. The Rolling right. Stones and you know the British Invasion. All the bands he was playing. Everybody with. was like, that's right. what they listened to was right. blues records. Curtis so he, Knight like, and. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And so he's got one foot in that blues tradition that is that would in, that inspired all of early '60s music, more or less. Um, and then the Stone one started out as yeah, yep. and then one foot in the future. Right. 
Taking all like, the way to today. Yeah, all the way to today. 50 years later. No exaggeration. You talk about him as a totally unique person uh, with his own set of rules. One of the stories that jumped out to me about his life is uh, the army experience. Two things. He was a fucking paratrooper, right? <laughs> right. Well, yeah. That wasn't even one of them. Ju- speaking of jumping out. Uh, but he, you know, his superiors, they've read, like, accounts of his service, and his superiors would be like, he has no interest in the army. Um, and as he was having a hard time, I guess he had sent, a, sent for his guitar, uh-huh. saying, I really need it now. <sighs> and so somehow he's a paratrooper. He actually completed his training, and... Somehow, he gets his guitar sent to him. He's playing it all the time. And he gets honorably discharged just for not caring about the army. Like, he would fall asleep on duty. He wouldn't yeah. show up for bed checks. And they were like, yeah, but you know what? Just let this guy out. He's Which I think really out. speaks to just how, you know, we talked about how intimidating he is, but also what a teddy bear he is. And it seems very clear that, you know, the people that he was around, he affected positively. Seems like everybody. Yeah, I know. It doesn't Certainly seem like affected me positively. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Same. Yeah. And many didn't seem like many people had had a, had a negative thing to say about the guy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and he just like was this. Yeah, just lovable, hippy dippy, musical genius. Yeah. So, then, so thankful for him. Yeah. So Killing Floor rolls through. Uh, it's a cover. I have a lot of respect for artists who use effective covers to define this is i think a good staple of a live album right um use uh effective covers and not necessarily you know mess with them a lot although i don't mind if they do and i'd sort of rather they did but sometimes even if you're just going to play a song straight um which is not the case here but i'm just saying it still helps to define and introduce you and say this is what i'm about like here you don't know any of my stuff I'm playing live in front of you. I'm going to play my stuff, obviously. But I'm also going to give you some of these cultural markers to let you know sort of where I'm at and where we're at yeah. uh, as a band. And I think this record is really brilliant in that aspect. Think about that. This and playing Bob Dylan, which I think to exactly. him was like a really big deal. Yep. Uh, and again, not the only Bob Dylan song he's covered famously. Right. Uh, and then, yeah, also playing... Uh, he talked about the other Rock Me Baby. Yeah. And plays hit. So he's... He's just letting you know. He's like, yeah, there's this, but here's me. Yeah, this is my world. And then Wild Thing, ending it with Wild Thing, going right. like this. I like the dirt. Like, I like this. Yeah. Like, sexy, scary yeah, stuff. Yeah, just to let you know where I'm at. Yeah. Uh, and I, so I think that's uh, uh, brilliant about That's Killing great. Flora. Yeah, start with Rhythm and Blues. And, uh, you know, he's got another, yeah, Rock Me Babies in there, too. Exactly. Now, Foxy Lady, <laughs> holy <laughs> shit. His own thing. His Can own, you yeah. imagine what it was like to be sitting there and you're bare, you're breathless after Killing Floor as it is. Yeah. And then he plays this song, which is not among my favorite songs. Oh my God. And the first example of the Hendrix chord, which he has named after him, which is that. Oh, now tell I me also more about that. Played earlier in Hey Joe. I mean, it's it's a so like all of uh, jazz and rhythm and blues is based on what they call the seventh, which is. It's a it's a little bit of a blue note. It gives it a certain. Oh, that's the fifth. Hold on. <laughs> Hang on. We'll edit this out. Oh, okay. That's that jazz note. Yep. So here's the root. Yep. 
It's very nearby, yep. but it's not exactly right there, so it makes things sound just a little bit bluesy. And so that's Yeah, it there. hurts a little. Uh, yes, it does. It makes yeah. your heart ache just right. a little bit. And then so he's got that in there. There it is. I was playing the wrong string. And then he's also got another weird thing in there. Yep. Which is good because it's like which is very bluesy. Wow. But he's using that along with the major uh, third. So that's a minor third. And he's got the major third in there too. Close by. But not too close by so that they don't, you know, they're, they're an octave apart so that they don't sound sour against each other. I can't really do them easily. Here, let me try to do them. If they were together, they would. Doesn't It sounds just like that muddy and That does not sound shitty. nice. You put it up here. Yeah. And then you get this kind of like. Wow. It's just like gritty and bluesy and like has a, just the right amount of like. I'm, I'm home, but. I'm unhappy, <laughs> or I'm horny. <laughs> I mean, it's in Hey Joe. I was playing it earlier. Like it's called the Hendrix chord. It's uh, it's one of part of his signature sound. Can I ask you a question? This is exactly the ty- the type of question that right. pops up from the from this kind of record. And this is maybe just the the sad and and hopeless question of a person who doesn't really play any instruments but kind of knows how to play piano and guitar. All right. You call that a Hendrix chord. Yeah. How did he find that? I mean... He probably I'm I'm baffled by how... Everything that you just explained, how do you reverse engineer that explanation and and arrive at that? Like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Or do you just keep, do you adjust your ring finger on all six, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, how methodically, or is that just not possible, and an artist com- finds it because because that's what makes them an artist? Well, like you know any, what I'm saying? Like, I do. And like any art form, music has its own rule set. Mm-hmm. And those are about, you know, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, major, minor thirds, major thirds, sevenths, um, moving from one chord to the next. We're talking Western music here. Western music. Yes, the do, yeah, the the Western tonal harmony right. and everything that has come down from that in the last thousand years in the United States and England and Europe, etc. Right. Um, so there's a certain small subset of that, frankly, that governs rhythm and blues. Okay. These are the kind of things that are are idiomatic to R and B and blues music. Okay. And they include those things I described: the seventh, like. Hey, that's what makes it sound bluesy. If you just did it, hey now, baby, yeah, da 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 da. It doesn't hurt, but yeah. that hurts. That hurts. Yeah. Yeah. You always go to this chord, you know. Yeah. That hurts too. And you know where it's gonna go from here. You know where it's gonna go from here. There's that seventh again because it hurts. And so the blues typically has that sort of vernacular. It starts here, and it goes to the other one. Oh, yeah. And then it goes back to that one, and it goes to the five, and then the four, the one, et cetera. That's yeah. the idiom yep. of rhythm and blues. So Jimi Hendrix is working within that idiom. Right. And he's thinking, like, what do I know? What can I do mm-hmm. to take that and just, like, turn the screws on it one more time? Wow. And so he gets that thing. What well, he probably heard some jazzer do. Mm-hmm. 
Jazzer. Um, one of those. And he's like, oh, because they're they're operating in that realm of you have the major third down here and the minor third up here, and they're kind of like you know the like we talked about in Gets Gilberto, where rock and roll harmony is like, I'm home, I'm going away from home, I'm home, I'm away yep, from home, yep. I'm home, I'm away from home. Whereas jazz is like, I'm home, I'm not away, I'm away, I'm far away, I'm, yeah, you I'm know, picking like up groceries. <laughs> I'm on this ocean, I'm lost. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'm back, I'm, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. <laughs> um, thank God, Desivinato's over. Um, <laughs> that that kind of thing, it, it's just m- more lush and more complex. And, and so Rhythm and Blues steals, you know, like, not steals, like, it's right, all of part course, of the yeah, same yeah. vernacular. Um, and so Hendrix is finding that and hearing it from another player that, that used, my guess, for, that uses those sort of rarefied harmonies and thinking, like, oh, yeah, that major third and the minor third up above it against each other just sound like it's. I turn the screws one more time. And that's going to be, I'm going to put that, he puts that in Purple Haze. I don't know the other chords. Um, but uh, he that, that ends up being a chord that he uses again and again. And especially, it sounds particularly good when it's got all that distortion in it. Mm-hmm. And all of that distortion is like the beauty of abusing bad technology like you can pump a certain amount of sound through this speaker but if you turn it up any louder than that it's not going to reliably recreate the original sound of the instrument it's going to start failing and so distortion is is really the wonderful wondrous product of shitty not shitty technology but technology that's not being pushed and used that's being pushed beyond its its intended limitations maybe beyond but maybe just different yeah yeah in the end and so there was the one of the distortion, the early distortion sounds that ended up in a pedal that Jimi Hendrix used mm. was a dude who's had a mixing board that had one of the, like the pots in the mixing board was kind of messed up, like it had a loose connection or oh, whatever. No so it made this kind of sound. I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. So he ended up recreating that wow. failure and yeah. putting it in a box. And so, so you can just, just press the- click on that box and have that sound on your guitar. So this is just one of the many, many beautiful expressions of people using mistakes yeah. as learning opportunities and uh, opportunities to uh, go beyond, create something. Yeah. Yeah. Go far beyond. Yeah. And so Foxy Lady does that. And that's like the first Hendrix song. That's his tune. And it is so fucking cool, man. <laughs> it's so fucking cool. <laughs> when I was a kid and I heard that song for the first time, I thought, Oh, Jesus. Any moment that I've ever thought I was cool doesn't come anywhere close to just this chorus. Not the same fucking universe. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And uh, it's just, I I wish, I wish I could talk to somebody who was there and hearing that for the first time who had access to that memory. Yeah. Um, Which is not unrealistic. Paul McCartney. Uh, Was he there? uh, He wasn't at Monterey, but he was... He had like at one of the thing. early shows, yeah, yes, he that, was one right. of their advocates to that's the right. United States was right. Paul McCartney. So they, he had seen them in London, you know, in an early gig. And yeah, but like, I, holy it fuck! Be... And then they brought all of their rock and roller friends, right? And they all just sat there watching him, going like, "Holy!" I heard that story shit. too. Like Keith, Keith Richards' girlfriend, yeah. like, yeah. and they all were just like, "Oh, jeez, oh yeah." The way, yeah. yeah, the way you are when you see somebody from outside your high school perform. Yes, <laughs> you're like, oh, you're like, oh, was, oh, oh man, okay. Um, we'll go into it. Yeah, camp. that was a great story that all these people were just jaws on the floor. And that's what he clapped did in to everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Like, wow, we thought we knew what we were doing, and this dude comes from another But it wouldn't universe. be the same to hear about it. I mean, hey, I'll talk to Paul McCartney anytime you want. Okay. Please. We'll see what we can Believe do. me. But. 937 Pete Tim. <laughs> but, right, 937 Pete Tim. Uh, but I would be very interested to hear somebody who doesn't have that kind of musical acumen. Yeah. Who was just 
in the crowd in Monterey in 67. It was just like, yeah, some guy, Jimmy, hey, I don't know, and then heard it. I would love to just hear what that is like for God. just a person like, to hear that for the first time. A person the like ears. me to just yeah. hear that for the first time. And then to think that like the you heard the story about the, the, the monkeys tour, right? And how the yes. monkeys loved Jimi Hendrix, so they wanted him to open up for <laughs> on their tour. Yeah. And the entire time, all of the Monkees fans were during the entire Jimi Hendrix set saying, <laughs> we want the Monkees, yes. we want the Monkees. <laughs> oh, and I love the Monkees, and I will step sure. up and defend them any day of the week. Right. But it's just a mismatched pair, and I love the fact that they were like so turned on by Jimi Hendrix that they wanted to know. Of course you would. If you can get Hendrix, yeah. Jimi Hendrix experience to open up your tour, fuck yeah. yes. I'm not, I wasn't super warm. I mean, I love the Monkees, but I wasn't so... Ugh. I wasn't sold on them until our old band Pint Glass Paycheck oh, yeah. played Daydream Believer and uh, right and worked uh, through Pleasant that. Valley Sunday and Pleasant yeah. Valley Sunday yeah so yeah, so all. much fun great it's all great song crew it's all like the classic yeah. session musicians of the sixties yeah uh, and all the real building songwriters you know like Carol Carol King and uh, hold on please please hold do one you moment, please I just wanted to see if you wanted to stop to get some more ice yeah I think I'll try and yeah find some more ice. yeah totally. cover so to me this is the song of the album oh. even though it's the a cover. that tone man let's just a moment for the that sound that he makes at the beginning of the song whoa god those all chords. the way through it yeah um i'm just gonna play my guitar for a minute oh it just <laughs> damn and he doesn't belabor anything it oh it's so good i mean it really for people who aren't bob dylan fans uh which i we should talk because that's not <laughs> good. But um, I mean, it's fine, whatever. But it's not right. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. yeah, it's just art. Um, exactly. But this song uh, to me reveals a lot of Bob Dylan's. It reveals a lot of Jimi Hendrix's brilliance, but it reveals a lot of Bob Dylan's brilliance because it um, easily takes a shape, and so many people have done this so many times with so many Bob Dylan songs, but I don't know that any of them were earlier than this, and I certainly don't think that any of them were more um, spectacular than this. Yeah, what he turns that song into, which was spectacular in and of itself. That was a world-changing song. Sitting there, right on its own. That first chord. Put it right up on the mantle. Yeah. We're we're fine. However... However... (laughs) It should be noted... That he... (laughs) Just makes his own version of this song yeah. that is so gorgeous. Such such a signature. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And cover. So, soulful. Exactly what we're talking about, too, earlier about, you know, picking this piece of culture to sort of let people know where he's at. Yeah. What's important to him yes. and, and what he can do. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a concept in um, comedy shows, in improv shows, where early on... In the in the early stages of the first act, at a couple of different slots, it's important to to demonstrate skills right. that you will then rely on in more oh, yeah. outlandish ways later in the show. Right, but we you, talked about that in a previous episode. Exactly. Yes, yeah, exactly. you need to you need to introduce yourself in that way, and and this does. And then later you can go off. Right. Right. And he sort of kind of manages to figure that all out at once. Oh my god! In this song, yeah, it's a little easier musically than it is stage. And I feel like a lot of it has to do that he really keeps it efficient. He keeps it tight. Right. And he, he sticks to the song. Yep. Um, it's not necessarily about having that in, like endless jam. 
No, and it's not an adventurous cover. Yeah. It's not something where you say, oh, how did you ever think to do that? He's just playing it, playing it his, his way. way. His way. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it's super impressive. And it's the one track, as I've mentioned on this album, that I feel is sort of on all the way through, despite yes. the lyric flub that he mentions. <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. And he calls out. Um, and it's the one that I'd listen to over and over and over, you know, without uh, without getting tired. And it's one that I would call out as being one of the, like the greatest reinvention type cover songs. Like, what what is a cover song that's not necessarily better than the original, but like has its own unique stamp on it that elevates it? So that's interesting to me because I get what you're saying. But I think that if I were to put a song at the top of that category, I would need something a little bit more adventurous or daring to be done with it structurally, potentially. Well, here's the funny thing. Yeah. Is that Hendrix has, to his credit, another Dylan cover that absolutely nails that category of a cover that far surpasses the original. We talking Watchtower? Watchtower. Yeah. Um, yeah, that completely turns that. Yeah, I feel of, yeah folk yes. song into a, a look at Armageddon. Yes, and I think uh, threw down a gauntlet to bands later on down the line. Yeah, to do their worst with that album, you know, uh, and by worst I mean best, obviously with with that particular His track solo as well. Watchtower is just. It's a multi-part suite. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and so you can already you can say like his cover of like a Rolling Stone still fits that, but it's only the second best example that Hendrix has of covering a Dylan song. <laughs> <laughs> if we j- <laughs> so damn, how can anyone if stack we, up? If we filter a little bit wider than that, we might find something pretty extraordinary. I guess, but maybe not no. because there it's that. Goddamn good. And how do you follow him at a concert festival? Oh, Jesus. I don't know. I don't know. That's why he played at eight in the morning at Woodstock. <laughs> right. And thank you. Good night. Yeah. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Go home. Oh man. Um, uh, so please do yourselves a favor and listen to Rolling Stone, uh, like a Rolling Stone. <laughs> please do yourself a favor and listen to this whole album. Well, obviously, yeah. Uh, and then after that, another rhythm and blues. Yeah, Rock Me Baby doesn't do a lot for me. I mean, I, I love it. It's uh, super fun, but it's not a song I'll ever throw onto a mix. Uh, it's not, uh, uh, you know, my. It, it doesn't blow me away on anything other than its sort of spot in the batting order of this ridiculous display it's keeping the energy going it totally keeps the energy going it doesn't it doesn't detract at all yeah but on its own merits as a unique piece uh if you if you told me uh hey tim i have horrible news i'm cutting a song from every copy of live at monterey ever <laughs> Take a and while. then you told me it was this one i'd be like oh all right you probably have better ways to spend your time but I d- that's yes the one. i would say i would say do something for others, but he, it, I feel yourself. like it's it's set set list curation. It's yeah, like we've talked about with various other albums. You have your like showpiece songs, you're like anchors, right? Uh, your tent poles, yeah, and then you have the sort of the lighter entertainments, right? That that unify and fill it all out, keep the energy moving. I, I it was more of a tradition of uh, musicians to cover songs. Think about early Beatles, early Stones, sure, 
All had covers. Early Crows. Or, oh, okay. Right. Well, lots of bands, sure. Yeah. Uh, but certainly more more common at that time. Yep. Uh, and so it's not surprising that, he, again, he would throw something in like, this is the this is the arena I'm interested in. Yep. And I can't help but also feel like it was a bit of a bone to throw to Mitch Mitchell and, and Noel sure. Redding, because that's yeah. kind of like the vibe that they were into. Yeah, this may be, I guess this may, if this song has its own strength, it may be the most balanced uh, for the three of them. And the most traditional. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this or Killing Floor. Right. I um, think this one more than Killing Floor. Yeah, probably Killing Floor this has one. That, that machine gun energy. Yeah, they're peeking. Noel and Mitch are peeking out from behind Jimmy and Killing Floor, but they're they're much more visible in this. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like this is meant to be like a crowd pleasing, rocking, yeah. mid set, familiar, possibly. I mean, it's called Rock Me Baby. Right. It's not uh, trying to, you know, change the world. <laughs> exactly. Dance, dance, dance. Who likes to party? Hey, 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 hey. Sorry, walk hard reference. It's Friday. <laughs> but and then on to one of his other just ball busting classics, well, Hey Joe. And maybe it works to Hey Joe's advantage to have this little jab of a song yeah. or multi jab of a song followed by this hard right hook just of Hey Joe. Pretty which uh expands you they talk about expanding the strike zone in baseball like putting a pitch in a place where the batter has to uh, is like oh shit yeah. i have to deal with a lot more than i was expecting earlier yep. and i think hey joe does that like oh god it really expands their repertoire and shows a different side of what they're about uh extreme and and not just suggests their ability to do it but says look I've already shown you that I am quite well equipped to blow your mind away with superhuman feats, but I am also very prepared to rock you to sleep yeah. and lay you down very gently and tenderly uh, and, and make everything feel okay. <laughs> You're describing right? that about age. <laughs> well, I mean, music, <laughs> the, the sound of it anyway, certainly not the lyrics. Right. Well, I mean, even still, I feel like this is this is a gritty... Dark blues and yes. in the tradition, it's not a blues progression. It's much more of a rock structure. It's like one chord progression that goes around, that then just goes around and around and around and around and around. Right. But like thematically and mood wise, it's very rhythm and blues. How many revenge songs have you heard? You know, yeah. It's again, it's a foot in each tradition. One in the old school, like this is the dark under. The, the dark nether regions of the blues, like the anger, the yes. jealousy, the 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 other part than just being sad or miserable about your conditions, but like being actively angry, having been betrayed, having been betrayed and yeah. then going out for it and like admitting, yeah, I shot her down. Uh, there are, that is a long tradition of folk songs right. like it or not. I would right. say, and I'm not, I'm, you know, there's never in a million years I would cancel Jimi Hendrix, but uh, you know, do, would you want to argue that this song is like pretty fucking brutal? Yeah. It's oh, yeah. really fucking brutal, Yeah, but it is based on a long tradition, not to make it right. So I, I but he's taking that long tradition, and then he is using, putting his stamp on it, and getting that much darker and that much. In, in a way, maybe he's 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 bringing you down easy in the end, like you say. But I don't know. Like I think this song is just one thing we haven't really talked about uh, in the realm of live albums is the difference. And I I struggle with this sometimes more than I probably should. But the difference between the studio recording of a, of a song and the live interpretations of that song. Which you have previously stated that you're like not into. Typically, it's hard for me. If, I, if, I've, if I've imprinted on the studio version, I often have trouble enjoying 
a live version. I think we said that about Arcade Fire. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I think so. Uh, I think that this is a really interesting comparison because I think the studio version of Hey Joe is uh, pretty pretty intensely all of the things you were describing. Okay. And I don't think they get there quite in this live version, but I don't think it really suffers for that. It's its its own slightly different, still pretty massive thing. But maybe a little breezier. A little breezier, a little yeah. less... Um, I, I get it. Don't you think? Yeah. But it doesn't suffer for like workman like. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> He's not quite in those dark nether regions. Yeah, I think they really mastered it in the studio. Um but but yeah. but and normally the that kind of a difference, the breezier workman like version would bother me. Doesn't really bother me with this. Because there are he's in full rock out mode. Right. And he still makes it a crazy freak out. Yes. Yes. And you've already your your eardrums are already bleeding by this point. And let frankly, me frankly, you could use a bit of a break. Yeah, right? you're not getting it yet. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you you are just in the in the in the verse. Yeah, I guess so. You know, like it's yeah. it's me it, not meandering, but it's deliberate. It mellows out, and it's it's, it's quieter. slow. It's I true. mean, it's slow compared to everything else that's happened. Even even Rolling Stone. Yeah. Right. He he livelies up uh, Rolling like Rolling Stone. <clears throat> oh my God! Yeah. Um, not so with Hey Joe. Hey Joe is a, it's a hammock feel. I mean, some of the most brilliant songs, some of the most brilliant artists. Like I think about, um, oh, what's the, what's the, uh, Beautiful South. Oh yeah, uh, one of Lori's favorite bands. Right. My wife Lori's favorite bands. And we're going to see um, them with her. Yeah, that's right. And uh, one of her favorite things about them is that you know they're they're. Upbeat songs have really dark lyrics, and they're really, yes. really heavy-sounding songs have fairly frivolous lyrics, right? And um, I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. Okay. The the, inver- the 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 former, right? Um, yeah, it's a it's a breezy feel to this song, even if the lyrics are super intense. Yeah, you so maybe saying? I'm influenced by the studio version more, just in that that's already impressed upon me when I sure. listen to this, and so yeah. I, I definitely admit that I'm I'm making that comparison while I listen to this song. That's an active part of the process of me hearing it. Right, is that association already? Which but I fine. agree that this version is a little bit more like workmanlike. Isn't necessarily the right way to say it because it's. It's not like he's phoning it in. No, 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 no. Oh my god! It's not that he's uh, just please. like kind of like flipping burgers here. <laughs> He if is, anybody yeah. in our audience got the impression that I was saying he was phony, or man, that I, I was, please, I apologize. Holy crap! That's wow. not what I mean when I say no. workman. Like what I need to say. No, is, no. Like it's more. Uh, yeah, it, it it is a little bit breezier. It's a little bit. He's got a lighter touch than he has in the studio album. Yeah, and I think that he's like kind of really focusing on like this is just a rock song. It's a freak out. Don't worry about what the lyrics are too much. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sing them, and because that's the song. But it's really more about the sound and the tone and the feel and the the distorted feeling buzzing that you're getting in your head because this is so goddamn loud. It it brings to mind I shot the sheriff, right? With the like <laughs> yeah. I shot the sheriff. Oh, did you? Oh but I did. <laughs> like, that's cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's just Don't worry up. about yeah. it. I mm-hmm. shot the sheriff. Hey, big news. I shot hey, man. the sheriff. Yeah. I probably would have too. Yeah. <laughs> I feel you. Yeah. It's it's a little deceptive in that way, which is I think a, a strength. Fair enough. Yeah, very interesting. Um, can you see me? <laughs> uh, feels to me like 
more <laughs> Rock Me Baby. Yeah. And this is where he starts like getting like deeply into banter and being... <laughs> yeah, we start to get really lost in tuning. Yeah. Can you address <laughs> Jimmy's... Uh, I mean, listen. You're going to play the guitar the way he plays the guitar? I'm sure it's going to go out of tune. That you've in, in, inferred that exactly right. <laughs> Because <laughs> he but, wails the motherfucking shit out of that yeah, guitar. Yeah. And another thing that he brings to it is not only his like gritty chords that that, but all the, also these bends that yes. kind of slide up and down. And he is he is he actually like bending the neck of the guitar the way you would with an acoustic guitar? No, you, he doesn't bend the neck. He just bends the string. He just pushes yeah. it upward yeah, okay. along the fretboard. Yeah. And he he must use very light strings and has very strong fingers because he, he, he gets notes, ranges that are wider than a lot of people can get. You know, yeah. a lot of people, it's just like, bam, he can go bam. Yeah. And so there's not only that, so he's stretching the strings that way, but he also has a whammy bar mm-hmm. on his guitar, which is this, you've seen like Eddie Van Halen uses sure. and other people you've seen probably in music videos where they have this like metal rod that's sticking out of the guitar and you I see him kind of like jerking it back and forth and it makes the strings go wow, 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 wow. So it's like this mechanical thing that that uh, affects the tuning of the guitar. So as you're playing, you can yang, 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 you know, mm-hmm. kind of make it bend and groan. And, and I believe it was available on the rock band guitars. Yes, it was. The, uh, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And it's awesome, but it does take your guitar tremendously out of tune. So Oh, it does? It does. Ah. It stretches the strings out so that they go out of tune. So, so it does the job of, of flexing the neck on, a, on an acoustic. Uh, f- well, it's not flexing the neck, though. It's just like it's detuning. Right, it's, like, it, it's like cranking it, the it tuning peg the really purpose. fast. Yes. Yeah. Of creating a vibrato, a wail, a moan. Yeah, yeah. As when we get into Judy Garland, you'll, you know, the, mm-hmm. the moan. Who's moan? Do you moan? Uh, you know, it's the moan. Spoiler of the- alert. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers. Um, I love talking about Judy Garland in the context of Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> Not that far apart in terms of years. But anyway. Right. That's part of the bluesy sound. And okay. and so he gets he goes out of tune a lot. Okay. To the point where... I mean, tuning on stage is a, is a storied part of the sure. musical experience, and and various different players have various different ways of dealing with it. He's very, you know, he's very casual and jokey, and says, "Oh, you know, because we care about you," or whatever he says. Yeah, like he, but he he's, also he, it's clear it's it's charming because this is his their first gig, and yeah. you know, this is their introduction, and so he's not used to being a frontman yet. Mm-hmm. He hasn't developed that kind of banter, and so it, it's. It's comical how often he talks about tuning and how self-conscious he comes across well, about his tuning. I where, feel like where it feels a little like you're exposing your warts as a yeah. musician. You don't want to have to do it. Yeah. And if if you watched, say, for instance, that Joni Mitchell video that I posted on our Twitter, mm-hmm. that what was at Isla White Festival or whatever, you watch her tune in between songs. She's talking. Right. And because she changes the tuning of the different strings on her guitar for the different songs she plays because she's a monster. Right. Um, and Jimi Hendrix doesn't change, you know, what s- notes strings are, are attached to. He's constantly correcting. Trying to get back to his cr- tuning. To and sea level. Because I was deep in a Jimi Hendrix rabbit hole, I was watching his performance at Woodstock. Mm. And just watch him during... The, just watch that, even just the national anthem. Yeah. His tuning is so constant that it's a part of the choreography of him playing the instrument. Mm-hmm. He will be, and he will know when to, it's usually with, like with his, I guess it's his right hand, you know, the, the one that's on the fretboard that's leaning over to the tuning pegs. Like, he's very accurate and very quick. 
Like, but he's uh, just doing it all the time. As part, of, he'd play some notes, and then he would let the the his uh, picking hand pick out a couple open strings while he's kind of tuning one of the other ones and kind of yeah. getting it back, course correcting it. It's constant nudges. So that's a little different. All the time through his playing. That's a little different than the Alexander Miko, Misko or Miko. Oh, Misko, videos. that Misko, guy that yeah. I sent you that where he's actually, he's, they, we'll have to post the take on me on, yes. on YouTube because he, that on our, or the, on our Twitter. Uh, or the uh, Wither Without You, I think. That one's really good too. Really good, yeah. But he's actually tuning in the middle of a song to change the note that the string is playing. He's, he's, he's using it the way a whammy. A pedal, uh, Not even because he keeps it there. Mm -hmm. He's so accurate with the way that he tunes the tuning peg that he can tune the string down. So, it, it, but it stays there. Yeah. And he will. He's even done it with two of them at the same time, so that he's doing a harmony between two strings <laughs> and changing them with by turning the tuning pegs, not fretting the fretboard. Right. To change them to a different note, right. and he's dazzling. One might imagine that even Hendrix would be impressed with that. I think so. Yeah. yeah. He'd be like, so, oh yeah, I didn't think of that. So, <laughs> so as you describe that, so. Mis Alexander Misko is using it to uh, create notes, using the tuning That's right. while playing to create notes that yes. he wants to achieve. Yeah. Meanwhile, Hendrix is just trying to get back to sea level in secret <laughs> with his tuning as he tunes during playing. So he's as he's making his guitar moan right. and suffer, right, right, while his guitar not so gently weeps. He and he's is using feedback as part of that because he doesn't have to play feedback. He just has to control it. Manage like it. A, almost like a Thurman, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. And that's another thing that I think that is important with the tuning because feedback creates a lot of additional what they call partials, mm -hmm. um, like little uh, uh, natural harmonics of the original sounds. There's just all kinds of different additional pitches happening with right. distortion. So when you're off and you're tuning, it can really... Yeah. Sometimes you use it to wonder wonderful effect, but the there's something about the distorted sounds that kind of multiplies and proliferates mm -hmm. a s the sourness yeah. of being out of tune. And that happens in this you hear record. It. Yeah. It, he, he's off-key at times in this Absolutely. Record. And then sometimes you hear him even correcting, and it's off-key, and then it resolves yep. to yep. being yep. on, and it sounds really nice. Yep. And he knows how to use that musically. So at the same time, he's doing damage control to keep himself in tune. He also knows when to adjust the tuning peg to have most musical effect. Mm. God damn. So it is no casual thing. Right. It's like, and you've, you, I'm sure we've all been to shows where we've watched the guitar player like awkwardly tune and like <laughs> try to tell a story at the mm -hmm. same time, but not being really able to multitask and then having to stop with just, sorry, one second. Yeah, he'll say things like, <laughs> the, the typical version of that might be like, so I was going down to the grocery store and I, <laughs> it was like, could you really not get to grocery yeah. store before? It's showing your There was words. a lot of buildup there. There it is. <laughs> I know. Is this a musical piece? Just tell me your tuning. I mean, they have pedals where you can, it cuts your sound and it gives you a little visual thing. Whatever. Right. It was the 60s. Yeah. He's doing it in real time in the middle of his set. Um, so I just feel like that is just part of his whole thing. So in that particular moment, I don't know why he, he, he stopped everything, but he was probably just... Maybe let's take a note of what he was playing just before that. Right. And see, like, okay, I can get why he was yeah. mangling his guitar right, so what much. Happened, what happened? What journey? The <laughs> he previous needed a song minute. Went <laughs> it's worth pointing out. This is a ten-song album. Forty-three minutes is a little longer than I thought initially. I thought it was thirty-four minutes, yeah. and and really, it's nine songs yeah. uh, because the the first track is the introduction. So we've talked about Killing Floor, Gobs Smacking, uh, Foxy Lady, uh, unbelievable, like a Rolling Stone, Groundbreak, uh, Earth Shattering. 
uh, Rock Me Baby, fine. Yeah. Hey Joe, unbelievable. Yeah, good lord. Right? Sla- Absolutely unbelievable. Uh, Can You See Me, fine. Yeah. Now we're about to finish yeah. uh, with three more tracks, and they are a murderer's row. I've said this before <laughs> about a collection of songs in a specific album, but oh my God. So we've ranged from just draw- jaw-dropping to perfectly enjoyable, super fun songs. And is the best yet to come? I don't know. I, I sort of hold Like a Rolling Stone above anything. Yeah, but I think that's my favorite I, I'm not. Track. I wouldn't be shocked to have anybody come up to me and say, actually, I think it's one of the following three. Yeah, Purple Haze is, is definitely a monster track on Unbelievable. Uh, Purple Haze and Foxy Lady are probably the iconic tracks because they're, they're so, such signature songs. Yeah. Uh, his career is so short that they, be, they remain from day one to today, 50 years later, you know, super identifiable as him. For me, it's always, moments. Yeah. for me, it's always Are You Experienced because that was kind of the first song I, I met from yeah. Jimi Hendrix. But, yeah. um, uh, but these are uh, obviously very associated and not a lot of people cover uh, Foxy Lady or Purple Haze. Um, nope. Purple Haze exists How could you, you firmly know? within that uh, sort of internet phenomenon that pops up every three to five years of the most famous misheard lyrics oh right right excuse me while i kiss <laughs> this guy uh uh it's a shame fun. that has been reduced to that but it I just know. it makes you it helps you appreciate what influence that this had that like this is like the prototypical hard rock song heavy metal song yeah all of that um but it has become such just currency yes of, of pop music that purple haze but like everything we talk about here at Record Time, the point is to sit back and actually give it credit for a moment and give it some space and listen to it and be reminded of yeah. just what it actually is. It is not the song from the commercials. It is not the song that, that tiptoes into brown-eyed girl territory or Hotel California territory. Right. Or like Foxy Lady, which was in Wayne's World. Right, right, right. Just like all the different ways that these have been co-opted and repurposed right. and regurgitated over the decades. Give it its due. Give it its credit. Give it some space and give it a listen. And in the case of this live album, as in the, in the context of the time, it's a document of a moment. Yep. 67 now. Yeah. Not 68 or 69 when so many of these things happen. Summer of Love, baby. This is a full year ahead of all that. And w- just to think about that, like, this, God, what a time. Yeah. This, and, you know, I was think- talking about 2001, and that was like two right. years later. This right, was right. the same year as Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. Ugh, it's good Lord. The amount of cultural shifts that Imagine happened. just going to a record store having to decide between those two. Yeah. I got. Holy crap. 10 bucks or whatever it was back then. Yeah. Four bucks, 50 cents. <laughs> I don't know. But let's not let's not slouch on Wind Cries Mary. No. Um, because this is the other side of Jimi Hendrix where he can play these sort of ballads and play these like um, more just sort of easy feeling songs and give them so much character and not just being going, going through the motions of the chords, but creating every verse uh, as its own like expression and how he, he ends up being his own call and response between his voice and the guitar that he's playing, I think yeah. more so than any other song, because he, he's creating a bed of mood. Right. Sings over it, kind of the guitar comes in, he sings. It, it's a nice back and forth. And, and We had a chat earlier about uh, Voodoo Child's Slight Return, yeah. whether that was the greatest moment a guitar has ever had. Um, it's up there, man. Wind Cries Mary, to me, the guitar 
and this is something that I think is pretty rare in music altogether, that the guitar sounds like a vocalist. There is restraint. There is bubbling up. Yeah. There is, um, he's playing off the rhythm in really beautiful ways that sort of stretch uh, the, the tension in the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and their vocal lines, they would all be singable. Yes. He doesn't do anything that you, you couldn't do as a human voice. Right. That's one of the things that they always instructed us in. I don't know if this is what he was thinking, um, but like when I was learning to do sort of especially jazz improv, uh-huh. they said breathe and exhale as you're playing notes and then inhale. Mm. Create the sort of phrasing that, wow. that you would as a vocalist because that ends up f- feeling more natural to the way that human beings hear and process uh, auditory information. That's fantastic. In the, co- in the course, similar to speech. Mm-hmm. And so... I think this is a great example of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't know about that concept prior to you talking about it right now, but that's certainly the impression that... I, in fact, when you suggest... This is the song we ended up covering. Yeah. And when you suggested it, that was one of the things where I was like, oh, gosh, you, you want to cover that? Okay. Uh, because that was intimidating to me to think of, of suggesting that for you as the guitar player. Right. Um, and I just, yeah, I don't fuss over it that much. Right, right, right. <laughs> but uh, it's just, just staggering. It yeah. Uh, certainly the studio version as well. Um, I think there's a similar relationship between the studio and this version yeah. as there is with Hey Joe. I agree. Um, they exist in close places. But I, I feel like I can, this one carries itself more in my mind. I agree. Uh, I, I am less uh, indebted to the studio version when I listen to this. I think the vocals are, are among his more impressive as well. I'm just in the Very moment. Very expressive. I'm listening to him lay it out. Yeah. I'm in the moment. Yeah. I mean, as I was with Hey Joe, too, but you're sure. right. It's, it's still, I appreciate what you're saying about it. It's being more yeah, big rock show-like and less like, I'm going to kill everyone. Um, <laughs> right, And right, when right. Christ married, like, yeah, the, he, the, he talks about it as his, his latest single. It's, it's a little bit of a different vibe. I think you need that again. Your ears are dying at right. this point. Remember how loud this is. And remember, just think about this in terms of the people in the room and what it feels like to be in a loud rock show where like everything starts to be kind of like distorted mm-hmm. and your brain just gets fuzzy. I think we've talked about that before in terms of the, yep. just like listening to an album at some point you just get a little woozy and you need a different kind of input. That would often happen to me at Allman brothers shows. Yeah. Where it's just like, uh huh. Yeah. And so like, Oh God, I, I need to, I need <laughs> yeah. a break. Yeah. Yeah. And I need something that's a little bit easier, but still feels good. and makes me feel something. And this album is brilliantly, this, this, Evening is really brilliantly uh, created in that way. Yeah. yeah. And so he goes from When Cries Mary, and then he's like, all right, it's time to wrap it up. Let's just get ridiculous. And then yeah. Purple Haze right into Wild Thing. Into Wild Thing. With now, his sacrifice. Now, is it Wild <laughs> Thing? Or, or, it, let's talk briefly about the combined anthems. Okay. Is, is there... You mean Wild Things and Strangers in the Night? That's what you're talking about, right? So I, here's, I'll just be straight with you. I didn't get the joke. What is happening above us right now? Hi, everyone. Hi, Hello. helicopter. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't get it. So I don't understand musically what was happening there. Please fill me in. I think that he was just being cheeky. He so was playing... This, sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. In the middle of Wild Thing, right? You're talking about that. No, he does it before it, doesn't he? No. It's during Wild Thing. And he talks about the combined anthems? Oh, I didn't quite catch that bit. So he says, we're going to play the national anthem 
of, of England, England and America. He was. I just felt like that. He was. He was just trying to work the crowd, and like that. That's not something that I necessarily felt like he then tried to get across musically, unless he was doing it as a cheeky joke, like you have Wild Thing, right? As the sort of British invasion kind of thing, and then Strangers in the, and the Night as the schmaltzy American. And is Strangers in the Night? Yeah, exactly. that was it. That he's playing in the solo. That was Strangers thing. in the Night. Yeah, Strangers in the Night. Exchanging glances. I see it. Okay. All right. So that that was my guess. I think that Thank Wild you. Thing was by a British band. Oh, uh, the Trogs, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so st- then Strangers in the Night is the schmaltzy like Sinatra kind of like this is the sleepy okay. American stuff that the the British invasion then upset. Okay. Which is kind of like. What happened? Look, this isn't the only joke he made that went over my head. I don't understand <laughs> Bob Dylan's grandma, which he hit <laughs> two or three times, <laughs> and I don't understand the mattresses and the golden yeah, the golden un- underwear because they don't like us for our. Go- Did you get anything on that? I couldn't find anything. No, I mean, I, I I just assumed that my interpretation of that was because our mattresses are too big. He was saying that oh oh you're American. You know, he's living in London and saying, like, oh, you're American. Oh, you guys. I see. You know. Materialism. You, you, Yeah. You live differently than we do here. Boy, that is the weirdest materialism, American materialist joke I've ever heard. Gold underwear. Golden underwear and extra large mattresses. That was how I interpreted that. There's no way (laughs) that somebody didn't specifically complain about those two things to him. Oh, yeah. He absolutely <laughs> lifted that from some rando conversation that he had. Oh man, at like uh, you know, I don't know where. some club or whatever, Ronnie some after Scott's party or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe he was a little bit, you know, kind of happy to be back in the U.S., right? Back right. with his people. I mean, right. it, it definitely he definitely comes across that way. Oh, but. there's no way yeah. that Jimi Hendrix doesn't like gold underwear and large mattresses. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, it's about. I think if he could only pick two things to have on a <laughs> desert island, those might be the two things. Yeah, <laughs> I'd hope he'd pick a guitar too. But <laughs> yeah, sure, you'd probably maybe. pick a guitar. Yeah, <laughs> um, he would make one if he couldn't have one. <sighs> but then, of course, he you know he would need it for firewood, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, he would burn it. He would burn for it. Sure. You know, it's but I don't thing. think it's you're the gonna... only thing I can do, man. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> right exactly. This thing sacrificed this thing I love. Do you think he really recognized those people he was talking to? That he would uh, two or three times. He's like, oh hey, 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 man, how are you? Do you think that's somebody that he actually knew? Could have been, yeah. Or it could have been they they were calling on him and he was right. just in the moment just right. riffing. Like I've certainly done more than what's like. Hey, you, how's it going? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, what a beautiful album. I I think that part of it was just his, not discomfort, but just like goofy way of responding to that stuff. Yeah, I I, I struggle to, you know, we've addressed this, but I struggle to come up with an artist who is similarly intimidating and joyful to the degree that Jimi Hendrix is. There's just a very unique spot that he... Inhabits and he'll always, always, always. I, I, I've been to you know a couple of graves here and there. I've met a couple of famous people. Uh, one of my more uh, special moments was going to Jimi Hendrix's grave in Seattle. I was high on my list the first time I went out there. Yep, we drove out. It's beautiful for one thing. It is, um, and uh, it was a pretty special moment. And and I do you know we talked at the beginning of the episode, at the top of the episode about the greatest musical question. You asked what would he it, have done? You you asked it, and it breaks my heart every time. It broke my heart when I first started to learn about Jimi Hendrix when I was a little kid, and and 
Yeah. Um, it still does. I, and I just... I remember reading about... I mean, wasn't his girlfriend like in the apartment or something? I don't know. I didn't dig into that. I didn't want I to. I might be getting mixed up with... I dug deep into his guitar technique and which amps he used yeah. and which... You well, know, that's the, that's yeah. much more worthwhile. <laughs> I don't know. I might be getting him mixed up too with uh, Jim Morrison, but... Um, Maybe. But I, I couldn't help but think that. And I don't think that about all of the 27 Club necessarily. No, but I agree. But there's something about Hendrix. He was so himself and he was so from another planet and he just brought all this musical technique and soul together i feel that, that way about hendrix and i feel that way about belushi right uh from I, that club yeah, yeah much more so than any of the others i think more of that way about phil hartman than belushi but yeah well he wasn't a 27 club no that's true that's right belushi yeah. was no, 27 club wasn't he yeah he was damn yeah yeah either way both of them taken too soon um, Joplin and, 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 um, and Cobain and Jim Morrison Cobain, and Morrison yeah. Farley. Eh, I don't know. I think he was older. Anyway, but anyway, but we have this document and we have the other so Hendrix documents and there's some great YouTube's out there. You should check out the one with him just playing an acoustic. So oh, man, you can, there's nothing you can dig into with Jimi Hendrix's world that's not gonna, you know, be an evening well spent. The but, Dick Cavett interview, right? Delightful. Yep. <laughs> yep. And he <laughs> talks about playing the national anthem. Um, I remember reading in an interview um, with him, he was really excited when he got Ladyland because yes. he, the quote was something like, I finally have a place where I just hope I can get everything that I'm hearing out of my head onto tape. And, um, you know, we, we got what we got and we got we to gotta work with what we got. It's an incredible record, Ladyland. Yeah. Lecture Ladyland is awesome. Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Could so well get, be on a future season. Of maybe so. Record time. Yeah, get on that deep dive. Yeah. Get into Jimi Hendrix and just like go back and. And let us know what you think, folks. Yeah. Uh, you can get at us uh, on Twitter at Record Time Pod. You can find us on Facebook uh, at uh, facebook.com slash Record Time Podcast. And you can always call us at what was the area code? 937. 937 Pete Tim. And thanks to Sully for leaving us our first voicemail. Oh, man. So nice to hear your yeah. voice, Sully. And about his favorite rock record, or like he, the greatest rock record of all time, because we threw that challenge out in That's the right. on Main Street record, and he called out Physical Graffiti, uh, which you can appreciate and you can't argue with, and, and, and fantastic. I, I feel like has some interesting... Uh, um, associations with Exile on Main Street. Maybe they have more in common than uh, you would. Uh, well, maybe, we'll get there. maybe we'll get there. Maybe we'll uh, get but, there. But we haven't but done they, a Led Zeppelin album yet. Yeah, so. but he also said like, "What do I know?" And I'm like, <laughs> "You know lots. You know what you like." Hey, and I feel like we should. We're just trying to get into why we like what we like and exactly what, right. What what makes it what it is and how to make sense of it. And we're gonna keep doing that. Uh, for the rest of season two here with live albums. You know, one other piece before we go about what I love about this project so much is not just uh, remembering how important and how great it is to sort of direct your attention and focus your attention on an album and the an way artist. you used yeah. to and an artist, um, but it's also to to kind of triangulate a little bit from when you used to do that when you were younger and to do it again now and see about the things that it makes you feel now uh, that it didn't necessarily make you feel then. Versus before. It's a really useful and really interesting um, just perspective on your own life. Uh, and so it's true. Uh, that's part of what we're about, and we encourage you all to do it, and we'd love to hear what that process is like for you all. Absolutely. 
And so we're going to continue that process in the next episode, as I spoilered before. Yeah. Judy Garland. Are we doing, is that next? That's next. Ah, okay. Uh, I, I forgot to take a look. I'm very excited about this. Judy, Judy, Judy at Carnegie Hall, 1962, yep. which I feel like is another wonderful example of the classic live album where it's just like an uninterrupted press record and go. Yeah. Um, my, many thanks to my cousin. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chris Haig for suggesting I had not heard of this album and when I put the call out on Facebook for live albums that people love he was very adamant about this record Yeah, and uh, man am I grateful for that uh, because unbeknownst to me it's been referred to as the greatest night in showbiz. Yeah. If that's not enough of a teaser I don't know what is. My god the most yeah the earth shattering night of rock here with right. Live at Monterey and then the greatest night in show business thereafter with uh, with Judy Garland. So let's just like keep this uh, train rolling. And many more live records uh, to follow here on season two of Record Time. Yep. Thank you so much, uh, so much for tuning in. We'd love to hear from you, so please reach out in the methods we touched on previously. Uh, we are going to leave you this evening. In the meantime, yeah, yeah with our cover of Wind Cries Mary. Thanks so much, folks. Talk to you soon. After all the jacks are in their boxes And the clowns have all gone to bed You can hear happiness Staggering down the street Footprints dressed in red And the wind whispers Mary A broom is drearily sweeping Up the broken pieces of yesterday's life Somewhere a queen is weeping Somewhere a king has no wife And the wind, it cries, Mary lights they turn blue tomorrow and shine their emptiness down on my bed the tiny island sags downstream cause the life they lived is dead and the wind it screams merry Will the wind ever remember All the names it has blown in the past And with its crutch 
It's old age and it's wisdom. It whispers, no, this will be the last. And the wind cries, Mary.